This is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's News Director. Thanks for tuning in. I'm grateful to have your company on this Sunday afternoon. In the next half hour, we'll have a report on the influx of new residents streaming into Harrisonburg. Not the usual invasion of college students that we see every year in the Berg and in Charlottesville and elsewhere. That's not what I'm talking about, but rather the flocking of seniors and retirees back to the Valley. After being away for years, WMRA's Andrew Jenner is back with that story. We also take a look at some new research into restoring our sense of smell, something that often degrades with age, and that could affect the rates of dementia. Also, could the work requirement that was part of the Medicaid expansion deal in Virginia this year put that deal at risk? And with lawmakers in Richmond again, we'll have some analysis of what they're up to. But first, the shorthand for last weekend's anniversary in Charlottesville on social media was A-12 for August 12th, the day last year, when white supremacists descended on Charlottesville, and that day had ended with the deaths of Heather Heyer and two state police officers and many others injured. While a small number of white supremacists rallied in Washington last weekend, emphasis on the word small, they mostly stayed clear of Charlottesville, where a thousand police officers and several helicopters were on patrol. And that led some residents and students to question just whom they were policing. Virginia Public Radio's Sandy Hausman was there for this report. Downtown Charlottesville felt like a crime scene with dozens of uniformed police standing on corners, patrolling the mall and surrounding a statue of Robert E. Lee. Most side streets were blocked by squad cars with flashing lights, dump trucks and buses. People who came to dine, drink or stroll could enter at only two places and their bags were searched for anything that could be used as a weapon. Can't have no aerosols. Okay. So you can take that back or we can throw it, in, we can throw it away. Throw it. It's cheap. All right, there you go. You're good to go. Thank you. The strong police presence was disconcerting to area residents Greg schmidt Garing and Julie Convisser. These guys are doing the best job they can do under pretty hard circumstances given what happened last year. But it's a little odd. I know their intentions are to be here to keep the peace, and I appreciate that. On the other hand, it feels a little overwhelming. Still about 800 people showed up, including busker Bill Adams. He serenaded Salima Dugadir, Rachel Rambo, Dorothy Carney, and Julie Brisky. We came down to support the town and see our friends. I came to support local business. Some of us were here last year on August 12th, and we want to be here again and hopefully help get over our trauma. We wanted to be in solidarity and support, not be frightened. Security was also tied at the University of Virginia, which hosted what it billed as a morning of reflection and renewal. President James Ryan thanked students who had stood up to white supremacists during their torch-lit march across campus. When the neo-Nazis and white supremacists marched towards the Jefferson statue last year, they were met by a group of intrepid individuals who had gathered around the statue. It was a remarkable moment of courage and bravery by our students and community members who stood fast. And he assured them that while tactics might differ, the university stands with them in opposition to white supremacy. Just like family members, we aren't always going to like each other, and we're going to get annoyed, exasperated, or maybe that's just my family. But not everyone was convinced. Several hundred people rallied outside the rotunda Saturday evening to protest the university's failure to stop the Tiki Torch March 
among them Sophie Schachtman. The University of Virginia's inaction that night emboldened white supremacists to be even more violent the next day on August 12th. That's when a car crashed into three dozen people, including Schachtman. Both of her legs were broken. Now she and others want the university to issue a no trespass order to all identified Unite the Right participants for life and to pay the medical bills of those students who were hurt. The rally also drew a surprising number of faculty members, among them historian John Mason and anthropologist Ira Bashkow. We know that enslaved people, to a large extent, built this university, maintained this university after it was constructed. That kind of structured white supremacy is deep in our history, and we need to remember that at the University of Virginia. I feel like I want to support those people who are taking a stand against white supremacy and trying to make this a more just community. The protest leaders were dismayed by extensive security fencing in the area and the large police presence, so they led the group on a two-hour march through surrounding neighborhoods before ending the evening at the statue of Robert E. Lee downtown. In Charlottesville, I'm Sandy Hausman. Well, it's the time of year when college students come flooding back into towns and cities all over Virginia, including Harrisonburg uh, and Charlottesville. But that's not the only age group flocking into the Berg. WMRA's Andrew Jenner himself returning to the area after several years away is back. And he has the story. Wow. Wow, look at that one. It's like a boomerang. It came back. Eight-year-old Marin Burt files away a bright, hot afternoon, launching paper airplanes off the back deck. <laughs> That's her poppy in the background. Her nana's nearby, too, and Marin's been seeing a lot of them this summer. Here's her very favorite thing to do with her grandparents. Probably play dominoes at their house, and I'm really happy that they moved here. Here is Harrisonburg, home to Pappy and Nana, known to the rest of us as Bruce and Neva Stambaugh, since May 2016. We moved here from Millersburg, Ohio, right in the middle of Amish country, and we lived there all of our adult lives. So why the change? Well, a lot of people asked us that question, and the answer is simply our grandkids. The Stambaughs have three grandchildren, Marin and her two brothers. Even though they often made the six-hour drive from Ohio, now they can play much more regular roles in the kids' lives. We like the spontaneous things, too, of oh, can you pick up Evan from baseball practice or take one of them to the dentist? You know, it, it seems incidental, but those things are really important because at this point in our lives, that really becomes our mission. We usually think of Harrisonburg as a college town, but its incoming grandparent class is pretty big too. I'm Sharon Showalter, and I moved to Harrisonburg when we retired, mostly because our children and grandchildren are here. There are at least four families on our street that have moved back to be closer to their children and grandchildren. That's her husband, Dennis, across the kitchen table. The Showalters went to college here, then moved away for 40 years before family pulled them back as well. We wanted to be a support to our kids, so spur-of-the-moment babysitting. If a child is sick and they can't go to school or daycare, we can be there. So. There was a lot of an intentional purpose in coming back to help support the kids during this stage in their life. The Census Bureau estimates that about 700 people 55 and older moved to Harrisonburg between 2012 and 2016. That's approaching 10% of its total 55 and over population, on the high end for cities in the region. I would say in the course of a year, I probably talked to a half a dozen folks that are coming here specifically in retirement to be close to their children and grandchildren. Jane Slaybaugh, a realtor with the Funkhauser Real Estate Group, has been selling homes here for more than 30 years. 
Last year, about a fifth of her buyers fit this moving grandparent mold, attracted both by family and the area's other perks. It's always eye-opening when I have somebody in my car and they're ooing and aahing at the scenery across the valley and over to the mountains, and I have to sort of pause and go, oh yeah, I, I live with this every day. Harrisonburg has the feel of a small town, but the benefits of a larger city with all the things that you can take part the, in. The uh, mountains here, we really enjoy. I enjoy birding, uh, photography. I can do all of those here. The mixing of generations. The people uh, are very friendly. Uh, the culture is incredible. There's lots of history. We do have a lot more diversity here. It's fun being part of the different cultures here. And it's just a beautiful area. Start like this and see what happens. Start like a football. Well, you could play for the Browns. <laughs> <laughs> Add a few grandkids to the mix, and it's hard to stay away. Even though we had to sever some regular contacts with people that we know and love, it really feels good at this point in your life to kind of start over and refocus. And once you get out of those previous routines, you discover that there is a lot of life left to explore. And it's really fun to do that with your grandkids. For WMRA News, I'm Andrew Jenner. It's not unusual for people to lose some degree of hearing and vision as they age, and it turns out that our sense of smell also declines over time. Did you know that? Accidents and disease might also be to blame when people have trouble detecting odors, and until now there have been no really good treatments, but scientists at Virginia Commonwealth University say they may have a solution. And Sandy Hausman has that story. If you search YouTube for cochlear implant, you'll find a video of 26-year-old Amy, a deaf woman, hearing sound for the first time. You hear something? Okay. Good, good. Okay. That's okay. You're doing great. Dad, talk. Talk to your daddy. Amy, can you hear me? The technology that makes hearing possible involves a processor converting sound waves to electronic signals that are delivered to that part of the brain associated with hearing. At Virginia Commonwealth University, Professor Richard Costanzo says a similar approach could be used to restore a sense of smell. The gas sensors will pick up odors and will stimulate the brain with different patterns and say, what does that smell like? And you'll say, well, that smells kind of like a flower or a rose. And we'll try a different pattern. What does that smell like? And that might smell like an orange or an apple. And then we'll match the two. What the sensor picks up, the processor will code that, and then know the proper simulation for an apple or an orange. Costanzo is working with Dr. Daniel Colho, director of VCU's Cochlear Implant Center, to find a fix for the loss of smell. It's a lot more common than you might think. There are estimates that up to and over 2% of the U.S. population has significant loss of smell. And that means trouble tasting food. 90% of what we call flavor is related to smell and if you've ever had a cold you know that food doesn't taste good. Uh, it's not because you can't taste, it's because you can't smell. There are also safety concerns for people unable to smell a gas leak or spoiled food. Sometimes Costanzo says the loss of smell results from a virus, head injury, or whiplash. The brain moves back and forth in the skull and the small delicate olfactory nerves coming from the nose to the brain can get severed or torn and that disconnects the nose from the brain. The nerves are so delicate, they can't be surgically repaired. A decline in smell may also be linked to aging. Beginning in their mid-50s, he says, people may experience a 10 to 20% loss 
And if they live into their 80s or 90s, smell can decline by 50 to 60 percent. Finally, Colho says there could be a connection to thought and learning. We already are seeing this in the hearing world, that those people who lose their sense of hearing are at much higher risk of developing dementia. We believe that the interaction between smell and cognition and dementia, particularly in elderly, is very powerful. And uh, anybody knows that when you smell something, it brings up memories from your childhood that you hadn't thought about in years. So it might be possible to fend off dementia by protecting our sense of smell. Whatever the future holds, Costanzo says the work he and Colho are doing at BCU's Center for Smell and Taste Disorders is promising. It's exciting because it gives hope to those who have lost their sense of smell, and we haven't been able to give them that kind of hope for years. They're now working on a prototype and hope to begin testing on humans in a few years. I'm Sandy Hausman. Earlier this year, Republicans and Democrats finally cut a deal on expanding health insurance for people who live in poverty or folks with disabilities, but the key to cutting that deal could now be at risk. Virginia Public Radio's Michael Pope reports. Adam Ryan doesn't have health insurance, a fact that serves as a dark cloud over his day-to-day life in the New River Valley. If I get around animals and dander, I can get a pretty severe like asthmatic attack and I don't have an albuterol inhaler or a prescription for it. I know I, that's what I need, so I've been kind of bumming those off of people who, uh, who do have insurance. He works at the Target in Christiansburg, but unfortunately he doesn't work enough hours for him to qualify for health insurance under the Medicaid expansion the General Assembly approved earlier this year. I've been averaging less than 20 hours pretty much all year, except for maybe a few holidays. Um, and now it's kind of picking back up because of the back-to-school season, so I'm getting over 20, but normally it's, it's below 20. In order to cut a deal earlier this year, Republicans held out for a 20-hour-a-week work requirement. That means that Adam Ryan would probably have to continue bumming inhalers off of his friends and clocking into work at his part-time job at Target, except for this. A federal court may be offering new hope to people who don't work 20 hours a week. That's because those work requirements might actually be in violation of the law. Legal expert Rich Kelsey. Simply put, if you're trying to add work requirements, uh, there's a federal judge in Washington, D.C. who has pretty much said they're not going to fly. At issue is a waiver Kentucky received from the agency that administers Medicaid. The waiver allows Kentucky to add work requirements as a condition to get health insurance. The judge ruled this might block access to health insurance to people who work at Target and want to work more than 20 hours a week but can't. This agency is not going to be capable of creating a written explanation that will satisfy the waiver requirements because to do so fundamentally changes the Medicaid Act, and that's a big problem. A big problem for people like Lauren Toomey at Americans for Prosperity. She was one of the chief opponents of Medicaid expansion. A lot of what was put out there when the House Republicans put forth this plan for so-called conservative expansion was using Kentucky um, as an example, right? The federal government granted them a waiver. So why wouldn't it grant Virginia a waiver too, even if they work a little differently? The way that they did their work requirements was kind of in the reverse. So Virginia wanted work requirements to expand. Kentucky got the waiver to have work requirements to roll it back. Even still, the federal government is now saying no go. 
John Liss at New Virginia Majority says he hopes Medicaid expansion will move forward without work requirements. That would not be a bad thing as long as the rest of the Medicaid expansion, which was a six-year battle to get here in Virginia, but we think for the up to 400,000 people in Virginia who now have access to health care, it'd be a great thing. One person who agrees with that is Adam Ryan, the guy who has to bum inhalers off of friends because he doesn't have health insurance. You have the CEOs of these corporations having no problem getting the best health care in the world, probably, and they're doing it off of the backs of our work, and all workers should be entitled to that, that same treatment that any CEO of these companies have. For now, Virginia is still trying to get that waiver, blocking him from health insurance. But state officials say Medicaid will expand in January, regardless of what happens with the work requirements, if they're eventually granted or if the courts end up striking them down. Either way, 400,000 people who currently don't have health insurance will have access to it next year. I'm Michael Pope. Well, let's wrap things up today with some analysis of Virginia politics with Craig Carper from WCVE here talking with Jeff Shapiro, political columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. They start out by discussing the regathering of lawmakers in Richmond last week, partly for the purpose of getting better numbers on revenues and the latest budget. Jeff, good morning. Good to see you, Craig. We're expecting some good news, probably some surplus revenue. What do we expect and how do we expect it will be spent? Well, we have seen, because of the improving economy, a surplus in Virginia. The budget that was enacted earlier this year has been fattened with over $550 million in unanticipated funds. What we're looking at now is a windfall to Virginia, largely as a consequence of the Trump tax cut. Because the new federal tax law and the current state tax laws have not been conformed, some Virginians, as well as people who live outside Virginia who are paying Virginia taxes, are paying more. And that's expected to generate, at least in the year ahead, a surplus of $500 million, if not more. And in this November's election, in a Hampton Roads congressional race, the Republican incumbent is becoming the issue. Scott Teller indeed is becoming the issue. He is seeking a second term in Congress, and he is now having to answer for what one would call sort of a spoiler candidate scheme. And people look at that and tend to conclude that Taylor is in trouble. What he has done, what he consented supporting, his own campaign staffers went out and gathered signatures to get an independent on the ballot, a former Democrat, the thinking being that that candidate, Sean Brown, would bleed votes from the Democratic candidate, Elaine Luria. Now, there's a wrinkle here. Sean Brown was on trial recently in federal court, accused of defrauding the federal government. That trial ended in a mistrial. But to Scott Taylor's problems as a consequence of this little scheme, a special prosecutor has been named to determine if any ballot access laws were violated. That's because questions have been raised about the validity of at least 30 signatures, 1,000 signatures were necessary to get Brown's name on the ballot. One of those questionable signatures, apparently forged, was attributed to a state legislator, Republican state legislator from Virginia Beach, Glenn Davis. There's another rub in all of this. Employees of the Republican sheriff in Virginia Beach, Ken Stolle, were out there also helping gather signatures for this little gambit. It's not surprising that the Democrats are up in arms over this. They're turning to the courts and want to have Sean Brown's name removed 
from the ballot. We will see what happens with it. But these are twists and turns that clearly Taylor was not anticipating. And yesterday, a threat by a fellow House Democrat to take out David Descano as minority leader turns out to be just that, a threat. And an empty one, apparently. A Jennifer Boisco, a two-term Democratic delegate from Fairfax County, who is sort of the face and voice of discontent with David Toscano, largely from younger, more liberal Democrats. It turns out nothing happened. It wasn't even a vote taken. The reason Toscano is dealing with this discontent in the ranks is there are Democrats, and again, they tend to be younger and more liberal who are steamed that the caucus and the state Democratic Party didn't do more to help all those candidates who weren't supposed to win but did in the 2017 House of Delegates elections. Remember, the Democrats picked up 15 seats. They are now within two of taking back the House entirely. Of course, that was a big, big surprise. Most of those winners were in northern Virginia. There were also pickups in the Richmond area, Hampton Roads, and in the usually red countryside of southwestern Virginia. The big plus for Democrats, all of those seats were picked up largely because of the negatives associated with Donald Trump. He, of course, did not carry the state in 2016 and remains deeply unpopular here. That distaste for Trump, Democrats hope, will translate to congressional gains. One of those congressional Democratic winners could be Jennifer Wexton, who's a state senator from the Loudoun area. If she wins, there's talk that Boisco would run for Wexton's Senate seat. Thanks to Jeff Shapiro, political columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Good weekend to you. Support for WMRA's News and Information Fund, which makes our award-winning coverage possible, is provided by Bib Bendali Frazier, Les and Johnny Grady, Line May Realty, Eugene Stoltzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Janet Tretner, Nancy Barber, Pam and Jim Huggins, an anonymous donor, and by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation of Harrisonburg and Rockingham County. You, too, can support local news coverage here on WMRA, everything we do here. Through the News and Information Fund, just go to our website, wmra.org, mouse over news, then click on News and Information Fund. In the meantime, you can get a daily local news update on your smartphone every weekday morning. Subscribe to our news podcast. It's called the WMRA Daily. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director and morning edition host. I'll be back with you in a couple of days in the meantime. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.